Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everybody. My name is Angie, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very, very honored to be here. This is definitely a classy, classy deal. Since I've spoken at the International, I've done everything from wrestle with pigs to, uh, to bungee jump. So uh, I'm glad to see a, a nice bed and, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> You know, the theme song for the evening is, you know, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. So, uh, I, I'd like to really thank the, uh, the committee for asking me to come and speak. Um, just And my hostess, goodness gracious, she has just been, Connie has just been great. And uh, uh, it's always good to see Bob. And, and, and just to be here is just awesome. We've had such a great time thus far. And um, I got a... Uh, this really huge fruit basket, and uh, which is always good, and so I'll, you know, be eating bananas and stuff in my sleep this evening, and <laughs> I got some really, really nice flowers, and this is just thank you so much for for having me here, uh, my uh, buddy Doug H, and, and and just being able to be here. You just don't know, but you'll hear in just a few how uh, how how powerful. A goddess is and, uh, and and shall forever be in my life. Uh, but uh, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, oh, some of my relatives here. Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> great. Um, you know, when I first got sober, I had this really, really uh, huge fear of uh, talking in front of a lot of white people. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> And I just want you to know, Minnesota, that you brought it all back for me this evening. I, uh, I appreciate it. I, I really, really do. And I can't really see my brothers and sisters out there, but if all five of you would just wave. I, <laughs> we can maybe gather in the corner later on and have a little conversation. <laughs> But I love you. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I'm, I'm just real happy that just, you know, I, I don't have to drink today, man. And, and, and that's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's the good news this evening. If you're new in the room, please keep coming. Now, at the end of my story, if you think for one second, newcomers, that I'm crazy, I want you to know you're in the right place. <laughs> and if you're in here... And you uh, uh, think that, you know, you can't relate, you're in the right place. <laughs> Just don't go anywhere, because that's how I was when I first got here. But I was, like I said, I was raised in Greenville, South Carolina, and we lived on a, a little uh, red clay road in a little white house, and we ate buttermilk and cornbread on a regular basis, and uh, we picked black raspberries for fun, and uh, I had flaming red hair and freckles in my family, and nobody else did, imagine that. And uh, so, you know, my brother, he would always, you know, we got our water out of wells. It was just real simple. Got our water out of wells, you know, had a little outhouse, you know. And, 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 and uh, you know, my brother told me why I had red hair and freckles, and it was because uh, the uh, mailman was my daddy. So 
Whenever I would see the mailman coming down the street, I would go, Daddy! <laughs> and I'd run up to him and, you know, put my arms around him. He'd pat me on the head, tell me how cute I was. And, and thank God for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps and the, the traditions and sponsorship because I learned that that happened to be a pattern for me along the way. <laughs> well, if you just put your arms around me and tell me how cute I was, we were, well, married at that point. You see him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and six months down the line, I'm going, what's your last name again? No, I'm just kidding. kidding. So my dad got transferred, and he moved us up to Cincinnati, Ohio. And, uh, you know, in the, pa- in, the, in, in the process of traveling back and forth, I'm trying to go slow for, for the interpreter. You all right? You all right over there? Okay, thank you. You know, because I, I, you know, I want us to be right here now. That's why, you know. But um, so we moved up to Cincinnati, and... Uh, my father had been traveling back and forth, so he got himself a little girlfriend, and that left my mother to raise my brother and sister and myself. And I need to tell you that my mother was my biggest issue when I got sober. I truly believed that if she would have treated me the way she treated my brother and sister, I wouldn't be in this predicament called alcoholism. It was all her fault, and there was nothing else that you could tell me. It was always a topic at a meeting. Everything was my mother. I had a hangover. It was my mother's fault. Until my sponsor, she's from England, she goes, is your mother liquefied? (laughs) Because that's what we do with here, is liquid. Say, yeah, yeah, right, lady. Whatever. And I'll tell you about my mother. She was my biggest resentment, but I need to tell you that today my mother is having some mental health issues. And uh, my mother's not somebody who believes in taking medication. And she's struggling. But I love you, Alcoholics Anonymous, because what you taught me to do was love my mother for the woman that she is. Not the expectations that I've placed on her since a little bitty girl, but the woman that she is who has her own set of deal that she has to deal with. You taught me how to be my mother's friend, how to be selfish, well, less selfish, (laughs) a little less self-centered. But my mother shared something with me not too long ago in her moments of clarity. She said that when the nurse gave me to her, that she said to my mother, you watch out for this one. She's going to be touching many people's lives. And my mother said, isn't that funny? For al Oh. Said you're going to be touching a whole lot of people's lives. She said, now, I didn't quite understand until, you know, you started the little drinking thing, because you definitely touched some people's lives. (laughs) But I let her listen to one of my CDs, and I let her listen to the one from the International. And she said, they all listen to you? (laughs) I said, yeah, Mama, they listen to me. For what? Well, they, they, you know, mama, 
They told, asked me to go, and I went. <laughs> so you went out of the country to talk. I said, well, yeah, when you put it like that, I guess, you know. She said, well, you know, I'm trying to understand that AA thing, but it's getting right hard as we go along. So <laughs> I said, mother, don't you worry about it. But at least today, you guys, as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous and a God of my understanding, I can be there for my mother. The one that caused her the most pain is the one that she could depend on. And that's thanks to you. You taught me how to be a daughter, and I'll be forever, ever thankful. Anywho, <laughs> so, you know, my mother, she decided her being from the South, my parents wanted us to go to good schools, so they sent us to Catholic schools, so now I was a, had a big red afro and white blouse, plaid skirt, black and white spaldings, white ankle socks, and I got beat up on a regular basis. It, you know, it just didn't look normal. You know what I mean? I mean, I, t I actually understood why they chased me, because, you know, if I was me, I'd, you know what I mean? So it just didn't look normal. You know, I mean, they called me Howdy Doody, they, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing. And one day this girl, Squeaky Squeaky, was like 6'10 in the fifth grade, and uh, her and her and her little posse decided they were going to stone me on the way home one day, and I mean, they're just boulders, you know what I mean? I, you know, like, you know how you see Africans fighting and they throwing rocks? You know what I mean? And that's how they would just hit me. And, and I ran in the house and I said, Mama, oh, my God, I'm glad I made it in here. Squeaking in with stone in me. And my mother said, and whenever she sounded like this, I knew it wasn't going to be good. She goes, you know, Angela, at some point you're going to have to learn how to take care of yourself. You can't run from people all your life. And so what I need you to do is I need you to go out there and you stand up to Squeaky. I said, you need me to do what? <laughs> she said, I need you to uh, go out there and stand up to her. You can stay in here and get the bus butt whooping I'm going to give you. And I knew what hers felt like. And I only knew what Squeaky's appeared to be. And uh, so I went outside and I said, my mother said I'm supposed to fight you. And she said, well, come on then. And then I reached up. Psh, I got her right here. Oh, man. Man, that was the happiest day of my life. I couldn't believe I hit her. Now, she didn't budge. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, you get ready to kill me, ain't you? So she gave me the big beat down. But I got this thing called alcoholism. I got this thing that makes me forget what I should remember and remember what I should forget. Now, I forgot all about the big beatdown that she gave me, but what I remember was that I hit her. See, from that point on, I became a boxer. Yeah, when I came into AA, I told him, old timer, don't mess with me, buddy. I've hurt people. They say, yeah, right. Yeah, you've hurt people, all right. Told my sponsor, well, you know, I, you know, I don't want you to really make me angry because I have issues. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I'm kind of going to work the steps at my own pace, if you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> I got this right here. Let me see. One, step one. You want me to... I told my sponsor, now, come on now, I told you, I'm the knockout queen. <laughs> but you know, you work a few steps and you got to get honest about some things. And, you know, I got... They called me the knockout queen because every time somebody hit me, they knocked me out. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, that blew that, you know, uh, whole thinking I'm bad thing. But So my mother one day came and uh, picked me up from school. I was going to a Catholic school called St. James of the Valley. And she came and picked me up and she took us to a uh, neighborhood. We lived in the projects when we got to Cincinnati. And uh, she took us to our home. My mother was a waitress and then she ended up getting a job at a factory and she got us a home. And when she took us there, it was in an all-white neighborhood. So from the age of 13 to probably 20, I wasn't even black. I uh, listened to uh, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. (laughs) My favorite girl group was Heart. (laughs) First concert I ever went to was Led Zeppelin, 1979. That's right, I was there. I was there. I was at the Ted Nugent Foreigner concert. Foreigner was singing Feels Like the First Time. You remember it, don't you? I have waited a lifetime. Spend my time so foolishly. I know I can sing too. I'm trying to tell you what's up. Woo! So I look around that Coliseum. I ain't see one black person. I thought, man, I am bad. And from that moment on, ladies and gentlemen, I became a legend. In my own mind. And so I lived my life as I went through music. Everything was a song. Everything was a song. Everything that happened, every drink I took, it was a song. My friend Rebecca came over and she gave, she had a brown bag, two bottles. It was Boone's Farm. You know, I speak at my church on a regular basis. And I tell them that I drank Boone's Farm, and they don't have that reaction. <laughs> you know, they ain't sitting in the congregation going, oh, yeah, Boone's Farm. No, that's not what they're doing. But, yes, at AA, you say Boone's Farm, and everybody goes, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, Boone's Farm. And so I took a drink. Uh, she told me that her brother had, uh, had schooled her in the art of chugging. And she told me to turn the bottle up and drink it as fast as I could, as long as I could. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, and I can tell you what happened to me didn't happen to Rebecca. My hair changed colors. I didn't have freckles on my face anymore. It's almost like they were just leaving. I looked over at Rebecca, her being my friend and all, and me being a boxer. <laughs> all I could do was soccer. Just a little love thing I got going on. A little love thing. And uh... now I'm going to tell you, this thing happened to me on the inside of me 
It was an amazing deal. Actually, it just kind of crept up my body. See, some people say they didn't experience it. If you did, that's good. But it just crept up my body. And when it got to the top of my head, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was something I was going to do on a regular basis. I knew that just like it talks about it in the book, alcohol had become my master from that day forward. And every opportunity I got, I was going to drink. Because for the first time in my few years, I felt a way that I always, almost knew nobody else felt that way from alcohol. And I, you know, I beat up Rebecca <laughs> and, and, and I set off on this thing of drinking. And I ain't got no, listen, I know I'm an alcoholic. It's a couple of drugs in my store. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. But it's a couple of them in there. I'm, you know, I don't mean no, I mean, you know how those long, long timers are. Get out of here with that. We don't talk about no drugs or get, what do you, get out. <laughs> and I don't mean any disrespect. But, uh, you know, I tried marijuana. I couldn't really do it. It just, you know, smoked it. Ate 20 Twinkies. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ate everything in the freezer that had been there for about 10 years and, you know, and no logical explanation as to why I would be eating, you know, green beans that are frozen outside of the box. You see what I'm saying? It's, you know. But to me, with every taste I took, it was like, wow. <laughs> These are pretty good. You want one? So I couldn't really deal with that. And I did, you know, some acid and... It got me a mental health diagnosis. And, but I have to tell you this. I was, uh, my, my friend Rebecca had uh, 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 given me a couple of little pills and told me to take one. But you know how many I took? Two. And uh, it was strawberry mesk. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. They don't have strawberry mesk in. Okay, sorry. Um, so it was a, I took it. And she, she told me to take one. I took two. And uh, they decided that they wanted something to eat. And. Uh, asked me to pull into the drive-thru at McDonald's. And right as we pulled in, the acid began to take effect. And I rolled around, and it was like a colorful little ride, and, you know, through the drive-thru. And I got to the box, you know, the little box. And, uh, you know, some little guy starts sweating me about, what do I want? You know what I mean? And I said, what do I want? No, what do you want? What do you want? And how did they get your little butt in there? You see what I'm saying? This is why I don't do drugs. See, I'm an alcoholic. See what I'm saying? Ain't no doubt about it. Nobody else would be concerned about why some the little man is in the McDonald's box talking to me. You see what I'm saying? And then I drive on through there, and it's merrily, it's colorful. It's, it's a beautiful thing till we get to the next window. And somebody pushing bags at me, and I'm pushing bags right back at them. Try to give me nothing I don't want. So I'm tussling with the little dude in the visor. He's asking me if I won't catch up. I can't understand what he's saying. Are we fighting? We tussling. They call the police. They call the police. The police come. They ask me, ma'am, what's the problem? And what is your name? And I, and I told him that, that my name was R2D2. And, <laughs> and, 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 and he didn't like that. They don't, they don't take too kindly to that falsification. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and so, I, you know, I ended up going to jail that night. And uh, 
you know, it's a colorful place. You know, just, you know, all kinds of beautiful things on the wall at the, you know, jail. And, you know, I, that was my first stint with jail. And I got out and I said, okay, now drugs, I can't, mm-mm, I can't do that. No, 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 can't do those. Those take me to jail. And, um, and so, you know, I was on it for, it, was the, the, it stayed with me for a long time. I went home laying in my bed. You know, I don't know if you guys remember that, but they used to have those big furry foot feet that you could put on your wall. It was back in the day, young people, but big. So I'm laying in the bed and I'm tripping and this big foot falls on me. And I'm tussling with it. Get off of me! Unhandle me! Mama! And my mother comes up to the room and she opens the door and she's standing there with my father and they're both going. I said, Mama, get it off of me. Mama, it's got me. And she said, I know, baby. Mama knows it's got you. So she, uh, you know, put me in the car, me and my big foot, and uh, kindly had me probated. And uh, so I stayed in there and never once told them, you know, that there was an issue or anything. And I got out of there and, and uh, you know, just started my deal. And uh, I, uh, at the age of 17, I got introduced to a guy, and uh, I was singing in a, uh, working in a recording studio, and I've been singing since I was three. And so I'm working in this recording studio. Am I going too fast? Baby, you still with me? You still, you, I see you, baby. I see you. She said, So I'm working in this recording studio, I'm partying, drinking, just having a good time. And I walk out one day after singing in the bathroom. And you know the acoustics. Acoustics are good in the bathroom. And I'm singing in the bathroom and come out the door and there's this man standing there, this tall man standing there. And he said, I can make you famous. I just heard you sing. And if you're an artist, man, you pray for that day. When somebody goes, oh my God, I just heard you sing. Nobody has signed you yet. I'm Bob from Epic Records. You know what I mean? Now, it wasn't Bob from Epic Records, but it was a guy. And, and uh, he told me that he could make me famous if I would go to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada with him. And, uh, and I told him I'd have to ask, you know, my parents. So I went home and, and I told my mother of my discovery. I said, I will be back for you. When I get my first Grammy, my father was like, oh, Lord. And my father kept things real simple. He used to just look at me and go, something is wrong with you. <laughs> he didn't try to figure it out. He didn't try. He said, something is wrong with you. My mother said, Angie, please don't go. My father said, let her go. <laughs> she ain't working. She ain't do- Let her go. And so I left with this man and I went out to Las Vegas and at a very young age I was out in Las Vegas opening up for some of the biggest stars and having the time of my life and drinking 24-7. But this strange thing started happening. I would drink and I would wake up next to somebody. Well, when we look at each other, we both go, damn! And he's got one tooth and it's gold. <laughs> and uh, he's going, but you told me you love me. So, uh, oh boy, <laughs> this isn't uh, good. Uh, can I have a drink, please? And, uh, and so I stayed in Las Vegas for a little while, but the gentleman that I went out to Las Vegas with, he wasn't a drinker, he was a drug user, and uh, he was uh, shooting drugs intravenously, and he introduced me to those. And, uh, um, I stayed out in Las Vegas, and I drank, and I drank, 
until I actually felt like I couldn't drink anymore. And that's all I lived to do was just to drink, just to, to get that feeling that I got that first night when I picked up that alcohol. And one night he comes to me and he tells me he needs to drive me to the store. He needs me to drive him to the store. And I drive him to the store. And when he goes in, he shoots and he kills the owner. And he comes back out in the car and he has blood all over me. He told me to go and I just pulled off like he told me to. And they got us about five blocks down. And so you couldn't have told me this little girl from South Carolina. See, there's some people in there drinking who can say what's going to happen to them when they drink. I would like to be able to say what's going to happen to me when I drink. But when I put alcohol in my system, I can't tell you what's going to happen. Because you couldn't have told me this little girl from Greenville, South Carolina, that one day would be sitting on trial for complicity to murder, watching this woman sit up and tell me what I've done and the man that I've taken away from her, which was her husband. Watching his little girl cry. And for a long time, I couldn't tell you that in AA. I couldn't tell you that. I didn't want anybody to know. I ended up getting a floater out in Nevada. This gentleman is still in prison as we speak. And here I am in, where am I, Minnesota? (laughs) Speaking at an AA convention. Now, I don't know why God works the way he does, and I don't particularly question it. All I know is, by the grace of God, I'm in Minnesota today. Thank you. Thank you, God. And so I came back. I came back to Cincinnati, and I made a solemn vow. See, one of the reasons why I don't really, like, yell at people that drink again or anything like that, because I need to tell you that every time I said I wasn't going to drink, I meant that from the bottom of my heart, but I didn't know that I was powerless over alcohol and that it dictated, it dictated to me what was going to be done. I was clueless to that. But I would tell my mother, Mama, I ain't going to drink no more. Daddy, I ain't going to drink no more. And, and in, my, in the depths of my soul, I meant it. I meant it. But to the untrained eye, we appear liars. We appear liars. My parents could never understand, why is it that when you drink that, you can't stop? I don't know. My son gives me that same answer today. And when he says, I don't know, guess what? I understand when he says, I don't know. My father didn't understand. He said, what kind of answer is I don't know? But I didn't know why. And maybe you can relate. I didn't know why when I drank alcohol, I wanted desperately to stop it too. I say, I'm going to drink this and then I'm going to leave. I say, I'm not going to drink wine. I'm going to drink beer. I'm a little bloated, so I'll do light beer. (laughs) Just like the remedies and the recipes it talks about in the book. I was always trying to come up with something to make it work, clueless to the fact that nothing was going to work. And I got back, I said, okay, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm not going to drink, mama, I'm not going to do anything, it lasted me all of two weeks. And back in Cincinnati on Sundays, you could get on the city bus and you could ride all over the city. And my brother and sister and myself took this ride all over the city. And we got downtown Cincinnati to the corner of Liberty and Vine. And it was this restaurant there. And, and, and it was pimps and, 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 and prostitutes, Cadillacs, Lincoln sitting there was listening to Shaft on their little eight track. <laughs> and I remember my little sister looked over there and she said, boy, you couldn't pay me to go over there. And my little brother said, 
My older brother says, shoot, me neither. And I remember thinking, I'm going over there tomorrow. <laughs> and see, that's the kind of mind I have. See, they said they wasn't going to do it. I say, I'm going over there tomorrow. So I start riding the bus from my home where my mother moved us out to the suburbs all the way downtown on a regular basis to hang out with my friends whose names was No Neck, <laughs> Greasy Feet, and tie-dye. I remember one time I brought him over to my father's house. He said, don't you let them sit on my furniture. <laughs> Who would name their kids that? My friends. I don't know what kind of friends you had out there. My friends taught me how to write other people's checks. My friend taught me how to roll up clothes and put on a girdle and go in a department store and stick them in there, put it on, walk out. I got ten outfits in a girdle walking out of my, my friends. But then when I got arrested that day, with all those clothes in that girdle, I never saw my friends again. So I go for theft, receiving stolen property, stealing. I get to the justice center, I take a physical, and I find out I'm pregnant. And I'm like, how did this happen? Well, you know, we, I mean, I know why, how it happened, but. <laughs> and they sentenced me to the penitentiary. And I go to the penitentiary with a baby growing inside of me. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the reason why I was able to get through that time was because every single day I would rub my stomach and I would tell my child, I'm going to be a good mother. When I get out, I'm going to do the right thing. I promise you. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. See, but I didn't know at the time that I got this thing called alcoholism that's more powerful than the love that I feel for my children. And I rubbed my stomach and I rubbed my stomach. The warden came to me right before I had my baby and said, you're going to need to find somebody to come and get him or he'll become a ward of the state. And I called home. You see, because by this time, my parents said, no, 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 no. You want to live that sort of lifestyle, you go ahead. But we got other kids to raise here. And we are not going to let you ruin. You go do what you need to do. And I called my mother. I said, Mom, I need you to come to the penitentiary and get my baby. She said, Angie, you got a baby? I said, yes, ma'am. And they came and got my son. And I remember like it was yesterday. He had on this little blue thing on his head and this snap-up. And I got to look at him leaving through a slit this big. And I made a solemn vow to myself. And I told my son as I looked through that little thing, I said, you know what? I'm going to get my act together. And I'm going to be a mother. When I got released from prison, my son was four. I got my freedom, and I'm headed down 71, going home. And I get to the bus station. Newcomers, if you were here, is it more about alcoholism? Suddenly the thought crossed my mind. There's surely one drink. Won't hurt me. And I walked up to the bar where my friends are, my friends. They ain't sent me a dime in the penitentiary, but my friends. And I go up to that bar and I walk in. I took a shot of gin and the next time I saw my son, he was 10. Oh, Lord. Y'all kill me. Oh. 
The next time I saw him, he was 10. Stronger than the love that I feel for my children. And you know what? I had no logical excuse to tell him or my parents. I'm in the same city, drinking in the same city as my child. And I can't get to it. See, I don't struggle with the powerfulness of alcoholism. I know it's cunning and I know it's baffling. I'm up there and I'm drinking one night. And I go into a shooting gallery and anyway, and I'm shooting dope and somebody shot ice water into my veins. And I'm walking downtown Cincinnati trying to get back because by now I'm living at this boarding house on the river of Cincinnati. And I'm walking down 17 blocks to go. And all I could do was say, God, I just don't want to die. I don't want to die like this. I don't want to die like this. And it seemed like where I lived was forever away. But I just said, please, God, I just want to, I just want to make it there. And see, I'm a believer in angels. I don't know about you, but God has placed them in my way all along my journey. Because I got back down to this boarding house and there was a little blonde woman standing there and she looked me dead in my face when I got there and she said, you do not have to keep living the way that you live it. I told her what had happened and she went up to my room with me and she put a rag over my head and she began to tell me about her drinking. And she asked me if I would go someplace with her and I said, yeah. I would have went with anybody that night because I was deathly ill. And I go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, when I came into AA, there wasn't a lot of African-American people in AA, kind of like tonight. <laughs> and it was a weird, peculiar thing. Because when we pulled up, it was 200 Harleys parked out front. All these white people. Everybody had a white cup. I said, but some guys playing the guitar and singing you fill up my senses. And I thought, well, this is going to be one heck of a party right here. So I'm walking up the walk and people are reading, like tonight, people reaching out their hands saying, how you doing? Welcome. How you doing? Good to see you. Welcome. And I thought, and they friendly too. It's nice. That's nice. And I get ready to go up the steps into this huge building. And this big biker guy grabs me, picks me up, and he goes, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Squirrel. I say Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, well, ain't like I got a huge social schedule or anything. So, She took me into this room and she said this gentleman was about to tell his story. And she asked me to listen to it. And, and he began to tell his story. I couldn't believe it. I was appalled. Is this man up here telling all his business like this? And then the whole room would bust out laughing. Ha! Ha 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 ha. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. I said, now this is going to be some strange stuff here. So I sat real close to the wall in case this was 
contagious, whatever y'all had. And then she said, after the speaker gets done, we go and thank the speaker. I said, well, good, because I think I got a couple questions I want to ask him. And uh, so I get up to him. He goes, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, little lady. So I pulled him towards me. I said, look here, brother. Uh, you know your buddy's laughing at you, don't you? He said, what? I said, your friends all out here in the comedy show. They laughing at you, brother. They ain't your friends. He said, oh, little darling, you just keep coming back. I said, oh, no, you keep coming back. I just heard your story. You keep coming back. And I stayed around AA for a little while. It wasn't like I had, you know, like I said, no social schedule or anything. And I hung around, went to meetings. I was the belligerent one, the belligerent black one, militant. Everything was because I was black. If you didn't get my coffee in time, I'd yell at the coffee bar. It's because I'm black, ain't it? That's why I can't get my black coffee. It's because I'm black. My sponsor, she's from England. She goes, it's not because you're black. Sit down. I said, well, listen to you. Always off to me lucky charms. Who you telling to sit down? You better ask somebody about me. I've hurt people. So I stayed around AA and went to meetings, you know, read the book, you know, did all this. Institution meet, the whole shebang. Never really quite thinking I was quite like y'all. But, uh, you know, I'll go. You know, it's fun. Great dances. I wasn't that far out of the club, so a dance was the closest thing to me. I was ready for a dance. Didn't want to do too many meetings. But I danced. I was there. Just dry, so crispy you could snap one of my fingers off. <laughs> so about this time, I know y'all don't have this problem in Minnesota, but about this time people start coming in with this little crack problem in the AA. I know y'all ain't got none out here. I said, oh no. We don't deal with crack here. Now y'all sit over there in that corner and I'll sponsor all of you. <laughs> but uh, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe one day they'll come up with a Crackaholics Anonymous. <laughs> but today, you're an Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to have to ask you to be quiet. And, and uh, we'll start working some sort of step program as soon as I can figure out what the heck to do with you. So I'm running around to everybody in AA. You know them crackheads trying to take over AA? All of them back at the back table like this. I said, look at them. Look how dangerous they look. They're like this. My sponsor said, if they're to be here, they'll be here. And if they don't, if they're not supposed to be here, they'll be elsewhere. What the hell does that mean? Why y'all talk like that? You can't keep it unless you give it away. You can't. What is that? So my little sponsees. I kept them all back there. 
protected. <laughs> I read the big book to them. One page at a time. They never ever blinked. They just looked at me. And I'm telling you this to tell you this. One day, I know some of y'all might not be able to relate to this, but one day I'm sitting at a meeting with the cloud on the horizon. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that surely somebody who was much needier would need my seat. Somebody is struggling who needs my seat in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I shall give it up for them. And you were talking about God using you as an instrument. I said, you know what? I think God using me as an instrument too. I think what he wants me to do is go find some black alcoholics and bring them into AA. Off we go into the wild blue yonder. <laughs> so I grabbed my big book, the real big one, in case, you know, we have some issues. Big book. And I figured since I've been coming around AA for a little while that you would know that I was uh, leaving. So I went to the Wednesday night 8.30 meeting. They asked if there was any AA-related announcements. He said, Angie, I said, look here, uh, people. I'm going to roll on up out of here. Thank you for the really huge big book and all the coffee. And I hope you all get over this drinking thing you got. But I'm going to roll on up. And you know how those long timers are. Said, well, one said, well, get on out of here then. There's people trying to stay sober in here. We'll see you if you make it back. I said, oh, man, you've been sober for some time, ain't you? <laughs> yeah, you serious about this? Don't talk to me like that again. <laughs> I hurt people. And I got my big book and I went and I said, the first African-American I see, I'm going to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to him. So I got on the bus, number 43, going downtown. A brother got on, seemed to be staggering. I peeped him out. I said, there we go. I slid over next to him on the bus. I said, brother, uh, you been drinking? He said, yeah, I had a little something, something. I said, look here, you might be an alcoholic. He said, I ain't no alcoholic. I said, you know, the people at the AA club told me that you would probably react like this to my information, so therefore, I'll have to give it to you the only way that I know how. And I opened up my real big, big book, and I said, rarely! Did you hear what I said? I said, rarely! Have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? Those who do not recover are people who are constitutionally incapable. And the bus driver said, oh, hell no. You got to get off this bus. So I told him he was an alcoholic too. So I got off the bus and I went downtown where I knew it was some black alcoholics. And I went in the bar, pulled the plug out the jukebox. I said, black alcoholics. They got a place for you. It's called the Double A Club. They said, well, then what you doing down here? I said, I graduated. That's what I'm doing down here. And I'm in there reading them. Chapter 5. Really important chapter to me. They wouldn't listen to me. I stood on the plug. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to give this to y'all the only way that I know how. At the bar. I said, rarely. Did you hear what I said? I said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. They are such unfortunates. They seem to have been born that way. They are not at fault. (laughs) 
And the club owner said, oh no, you got to get out of here. <laughs> Newcomers, suddenly the thought crossed my mind. Surely I could have just one. <laughs> Y'all killing me, man. <laughs> Y'all killing me with the emotion, man. Woo! Everybody in the room goes, oh. No, you didn't do that, did you? <laughs> so I asked the bartender for a shot of gin. She gave me a shot of gin. Boom, slammed it down, drinking. 45 minutes later, I'm in the crack house. <laughs> you guys are... <laughs> you're killing me. Minnesota, you're killing me. <laughs> oh. She went to the crack house. Oh. I made it out. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, you know, 40, and I'm only telling you this to tell you this. What I've learned in my sobriety is any time, and, and I was wrong to those people. See, my own fear and ignorance had me treat God's children like they were dogs. And what I've learned in my recovery is any time I stand in judgment of some person, place, thing, or situation, I just wrote my meal ticket to experience it on some level in my life. And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I sat back there at the back table with the rest of them. blink my first year of recovery. Everybody thought I was just extremely excited about being sober. And I walked back into that coffee house and that same old timer that said, get out of here, was in the coffee bar. And when I got back, ladies and gentlemen, to Alcoholics Anonymous, June the 20th, 1991, I weighed 75 pounds. are some compassionate people. Goodness gracious. Yeah, because I'm sure nobody came back in here 75 pounds. It happens, people. And I came back in and that same old timer that was sitting there that night, you know how sensitive they are. He saw my little frail self and he said, Damn! He said, Angie, is that you? He goes, you're going to die. I said, I know. Because everything, newcomers, that they told me was going to happen, happened. And the main thing that they told me that was going to happen was that it would get worse, never better. That night, I was properly horrified and thoroughly convinced that when Angie puts alcohol in her system, something happens to her that don't happen to her brother. My brother drinks a beer, he goes to work. I drink a beer, I'm on the evening news. That's the difference in me and my brother's drinking. And I came back to AA and I called my sponsor and I said, will you work with me again? And she said, absolutely. She said, but you got to get busy. I don't want to hear what you think. I don't want to hear that you hurt people. I don't want to hear any of that. I said, yes, ma'am. My head said, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. But what came out of my mouth was, yes, ma'am. 
Y'all know y'all done thought that about your sponsors. <laughs> and so I started on this journey in recovery. And I was going to meetings. And I was going to conferences. And I was working the steps. And something happened. I can't tell you when it happened, but I can tell you this much. At two years sober, the realization sitting in my living room that I was an alcoholic came to me clearer than ever. It talks about it in the book. I've got this thing. I remember I ran over to my neighbor and I banged on the door and I said, Girl, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> she said, If you come back over here again, I'll call the police. Because, you know, I didn't really know her like that. But I began to do this thing. Newcomers, if you're struggling with whether to do it or not, just do it. See, that's what my sponsor told me. Don't just do it. So if they say that they suggested stuff to you, newcomers, that's not what they're doing. They're telling you, really. They use suggestion as a nice kind of way. But my sponsor says things like, I strongly suggest. That don't sound like, do you want to? Do you like to get together? Nothing like, and I needed that. I needed that. And my sponsor was a white woman. I told her we had to talk, you know, me being involved in the civil rights movement. <laughs> told her that, you know, we was going to have problems because she's white and I'm black. If you're in the room and you're struggling with a white sponsor and you want to come to me and talk about it, come and talk about it. But my, let me tell you what my sponsor did. My sponsor said, I need for you to look through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Show me in there where it says that I cannot sponsor you because you're black and I'm white. No problem. Give me the book. So I start turning the pages, white people stuff, white people stuff, Hampshire Grenadier, white people stuff. Here, Bill Store, no, nothing, no, no, no. And I got to the back of the stories. And there was a black woman in there. And she Man, this is my time, okay? I ain't got that much more time, but you ain't getting ready to take no time from me back there laughing like the lion on the Wizard of Oz. So I did my thing, and I just, you know, I start going to meetings, and I start doing the deal. And regardless of what I thought, I just kept doing what my sponsor told me to do. And, uh, I came in, I was uneducated. Uh. <laughs> Is that your sponsor sitting next to you? She ain't told you yet about yelling out at meetings. Yeah, you need to get with her after this thing. We don't, uh, you know, I got the lion back there. And... Y'all crazy in Minnesota. Bob, what you gonna do about this, man? 
handle your business, man. They yelling out, <laughs> back in the back, what's really going on? So the black woman, So the black woman in the back of the book went to an AA convention. She was the only black person there said that nobody treated her any differently. Oh. <laughs> That's what my sponsor wanted me to see. That regardless of my skin color, that if I had an honest desire to stay clean and sober, I could get help in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what happened. So I got my education. Am I running over? I'm sorry. How much time I got left? Be honest with me. Bob, how much time I got left? Five minutes? Maybe I should ask somebody other than Bob. <laughs> Bob ready to go, ain't he? <laughs> so anyway, I came in the rooms. I was uneducated. I had a GED, but I had made it in prison. And uh, I gave it to my boss that I was working for at the time. And I told my, my sponsor that I had heard a woman talking about going to college. And I thought maybe I would want to go to college too. And, and uh, you know, then I had to tell her about that GED that my boss had that was fake. And she said that you need to go tell him. And I said, I'm an ex-con. He's going to fire me. She said, you need to go tell him anyway. And I went to my boss and I told him, I said, oh, Roger, that GED you got in my personnel file is fake. And so he went in, he pulled it out, he looked at it, and he said, you good. <laughs> He said, but you got to have a high school education to work here. He said, I'll give you six months to get one. So, you know how they show on TV, you too can get your high school diploma on TV. So, I started ordering, ordering the books, and I take the test, and I send the test back. Then I take social studies, send it back, math, send it back. Passed them all, went and signed up for the GED and got a perfect score. That might not be a lot to some people, but that was a lot to me. And when I got that GED, December the 7th, 1999, I grabbed it and I put it close to my heart. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had accomplished something. I said, I'm going to college. And I went to the University of Cincinnati and I walked into the admissions office and I said, I want to go to college. <laughs> and they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and they helped me and they told me about a study that was a program that was just started. It was the, the uh, uh, School of Addictions. And so I got certified by the School of Addictions. I have a certificate in addiction studies. Already had the other knowledge, now I got some book knowledge. I'm good to basically go at this point. And, and newcomers, if you knew, man, don't leave. Don't leave before the miracle happens. Don't leave before the miracle happens. And we got, we got newcomers, we got examples. Here, we got examples. That brother over there had 61 years of sobriety. 
So I'm about to graduate from the University of Cincinnati. I can't wait. I get to wear a cap and gown. My mama get to be there. My daughter's 19. And my son is 24. And my daughter's dating a white guy. And my son wants to be a rapper. If he could rap, it would be really great, but he can't rap. I told him, son, I got a paper today for you. It's time to find a job. I'm going to tell you something. My grandmother, she used to sing this song. And I'm going to close with this. And when she used to sing it when I was little back home, I never understood. But then I got soaked. And I understood. Do you mind? Amazing grace, how sweet the, the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I was, was lost, but now I'm, I'm found. I was blind, but now I I see. God bless. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.